Congress stimulates the economy by giving 91% of a $1.9 trillion stimulus bill to their rich buddies and donors. So we'll talk a bit about what happened there and the fight for $15 an hour that died right along with that. In other news, Trump sends a cease and desist letter to the GOP saying, Stop using my name to campaign. Okay, it's not right. I don't like you guys anymore until I want to run against you again. So we'll talk a bit about that. Chris Cuomo decides that Andy Cuomo isn't taking enough heat, so he decides to take some of the heat back up off of him by doing something tremendously stupid. And Joy Reid comes out and says that conservatives would give up the tax cuts if they were allowed to say the N-word. I'm Jay Edgar, and this is Contemporary. All right, sorry for the late start, you guys. I uh, had a couple things going and a couple things rolling, and they did try to cram a whole bunch of news into this uh, past weekend here. So I was running just a little bit behind, and we're here, though. we got to talk about what's going on here. Plus, it's a Monday, so I don't have to run right off and go back to work right away either. So <clears throat> let's get into the news and see what we have going on. But before we do that, head on over, bookmark the website, freedomscoop.com, because we are nearing the ends of our reconstruction which means we'll be ready to go live very, very soon. And with that, we're hoping that you'll come back over and come and hang out with us over there. But while you're waiting for our dust to clear, head on over and check out our friends, The Daily Ignoramus, The Breakdown with Birkenhoff, The Freckles and Brit Show, The R-Rated Conservative, and The Generational Gap. Bookmark the page, get ready to pick up some of our swag, help us support great creators, and help us launch above The Daily Wire, and the other Right Side News broadcasts and help us find our place in the new media. Looking at the Dow coming into this, the Dow closed at 31,496.30 at the very end of Friday. It looked like it was tumbling as it started, it jumped up from the futures, which we knew it was going to because we watch this program every week and we look at where the futures are going every single day. So it jumped up, it dropped back down and fell below the close and then just steadily started climbing because people started to realize that the stimulus was going through no matter what. So that's where we sit on that. Let's look at the Bitcoin. Bitcoin is at 58.59 US dollars and zero US cents, which means it's kind of fluctuating. As I've kept mentioning, right between that 48,000 and 52,000 marks. And I'm pretty sure that's where it's going to hold steady right now, especially as the Federal Reserve starts to print off 1.9 trillion additional dollars. All right, let's look at gas. From Gas Buddy, out of Madison, Wisconsin, the Costco once or er, continues to stay at 245 per gallon around the area. 245, 249. So the 246 is all went away, but uh, Fleet Farm jumped up to 249. Woodman's jumped up to 249. But that Costco is still staying right up at 245. So it's a little bit lower than where I live, but I live in a small town, so I'm not comfortable and ready to tell you what small town that is just yet. So we're going to go with Madison because it's a really big city and it's close enough to be relevant, but far enough away that, well, you won't show up at my doorstep, hopefully. All right, let's look at what CNBC has to say. S&P 500 futures slip even after the Senate passes $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill as bond yields rise. 
S&P 500 futures fell Monday even as a new stimulus package from Washington headed towards final passage this week. Higher bond yields continue to cause rotation of technology stocks that have led the market's comeback during the pandemic. Futures for the tech-heavy Nasdaq 100 got hit the hardest, down 1%. S&P 500 futures were off by 0.4%. The Dow Jones Industrial Average futures erased earlier gains of more than 100 points to trade 20 points higher. Stock futures came off their lows after CNBC reporter David Tepper is getting bullish on stocks and believes that the recent rapid rise in rates is set to stabilize. The Senate passed $1.9 trillion of economic relief and stimulus bill on Saturday, paving the way for extensions to unemployment benefits, another round of stimulus checks to aid the state and local governments. The Democrat-controlled House is expected to pass the bill later this week. President Biden is expected to sign it into law before the unemployment aid programs expire on March 14th. The benchmark 10-year yield rise has risen sharply in recent weeks. In anticipation of more stimulus on top of booming economic recovery, the 10-year Treasury yield was up 3 basis points to 1.59% in early trading Monday. The yield rose as high as 1.62% on Friday after starting the calendar year, below the 1% mark. The rapid move in the bond market was unnerved equity investors as well, contributing to weakness in stocks with high valuations. 10-year yields finally caught up with other asset markets. This is putting pressure on valuations, especially for the most expensive stocks that had reached the nosebleed valuations. Mike Wilson, the chief U.S. equity strategist at Morgan Stanley, said in a note. Shares of Tesla were off another 3% in pre-market trading. On Monday, Zoom video fell 2%. On the flip side, the stimulus news boosted stocks, banking on a strong economic recovery. Shares of retailers, energy companies, and banks were higher in pre-market trading. You don't say. Disney shares added 2% in pre-market trading after California eased COVID rules, paving the way for Disneyland to reopen on a limited basis on or in April. rather. I actually thought they were open already because I've seen a few people I follow on Instagram who are down in California who have been regularly going to Disneyland. I didn't know they were closed. That's news. I know Disney World is open. I didn't know Disneyland was. Excuse me. We see higher rates largely as a function of earlier and stronger than expected economic recovery and supportive of our positive equity outlook. Dubrovko Lacos Bouchas, J.P. Morgan's chief U.S. equity strategist, said in a note, The tug-of-war taking place in the market as investors' position for higher interest rates has knocked back the market a bit, but largely caused volatile trading and the S&P 500 to churn in place. For March, the Dow Industrials, leveraged more to the reopening, is up 1.8%, while the Nasdaq Composite is off by 2%. Meanwhile, the broader S&P 500 is up 0.8%. The S&P 500 remains less than 3% from an all-time high. So that's what we're looking at from CNBC. I've got one archived from Business Insider I want to talk about. 10 Things You Need to Know Before the Opening Bell from Shalini Nagarajan. All right, and this is one we're going to be able to just kind of fly right through. Number one, oil hits $70 after an attack on Saudi Arabian facilities. So we'll be watching what oil is going to do and possibly see the gas prices go back up again. Number two, Mark Cuban says Dallas Mavericks are the largest Dogecoin merchant in the world. The NBA basketball team has carried out more than 
20,000 Dogecoin transactions, the billionaire said. Boy, those 20 bucks are really going to start looking good here in a little bit. Number three, the Fed's hand is being forced by the latest market tantrum. Number four, seven reasons why investors should buy the stock market's recent dip. Fund Strats Tom Lee thinks investors should take advantage of the recent stock market decline and buy the dip. Number five, investors... Hold on a sec. We got to back up just a second because I remember when the V-shaped recovery started up. I remember that name, Bunstrats Tom Lee, and he was telling people, don't buy the bubble. Get out of the bubble. It's all just going to come crashing back down. Don't buy the stock market. I think Tom Lee seems to be influenced by whoever's in the White House at the time. Number five, investors shouldn't fear inflation, an investment chief says. Yeah, okay. James Paulson told investors in a letter, inflation is only a concern for stocks when real economic growth is weak. It is. Number six, Michael Burry's 17 best tweets. The big short investor has slammed Tesla, Bitcoin, Robinhood, and meme stock buyers. Well, yeah, because he can't go back and get fucking rich off of it. Number seven, on the data docket, wholesale inventories and the three-month and six-month bill auctions are due. Number eight, Credit Suisse is on the hunt for companies being underestimated by the market. The firm says to buy these th uh, 13 top-of-the-crop stocks, it expects to demolish expectations and rocket higher. So now they're trying to push you to short squeeze. Number nine, a 48-year market vet breaks down why stocks could tumble 80% this year in a worst-case scenario. David Hunter also breaks down how gold could soar to 2,500 as soon as quarter two. And the last one, number 10, the investing chief of a crypto hedge fund breaks down why he thinks Bitcoin will achieve a $5 trillion market cap by 2023. That is actually entirely possible, just seeing the way that uh, fiat currency is going down and people are buying more and more Bitcoin, mostly fueled by the fact that Elon Musk told him it was a good fucking idea. So that's what to watch before the market opens. Hopefully you guys can take a little bit of advantage of that and make some money off of that. I'm not going to tell you what to do because I'm not a certified financial advisor, but take this information, digest it, and see what it does for your portfolios, your retirements, and anything else that you have sitting out in the market. Let's look at the big news of the weekend. Once again, going back to CNBC, Senate passes $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. House Democrats plan final approval on Tuesday. And the thing that gets me about this is I actually thought this was all settled. All the way back in January. Because they were talking about, well, the House passed it, and the, the Senate passed the budget reconciliation, so they could just come in with a, with a simple majority. So I don't know if they had to go back and change it in the House or do a bunch of other procedural bullshit, but I actually thought this was all done already. But here we go. Now we're rocketing to $30 trillion. And I tweeted that out, too. I said, the rich are going to get richer, and we're rocketing towards $30 trillion in U.S. national debt. America's back, baby! But let's see what Jacob Pramuk has to say about this. 
The Senate passed a $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief package on Saturday as Democrats rushed to send out a fresh round of aid. The Democrat-held House aims to pass the bill on Tuesday and send it to President Joe Biden for his signature before a March 14th deadline to renew unemployment aid programs. The Senate approved the plan in a 50-49 party-line vote as Republicans questioned the need for another broad spending package. The legislation includes direct payments of up to $1,400 to most Americans, a $3,000 weekly boost to jobless benefits into September, and an expansion of the child tax credit for one year. Something interesting to note, and I'm only, I've got the graphic loaded, ready to go for the Red Net Show tonight, but I want to talk about a piece of propaganda that's being pushed around by the Congressional bu uh, Budget Office right now, trying to make it look like they're not giving $1.9 trillion to their rich investor buddies, in spite of the fact that Ron Johnson had the bill read aloud on the Senate floor. Uh, I believe that was on Thursday. So... You can easily turn back into C-SPAN, look back through, and watch six hours of the bill getting read on the floor so you know exactly where it's going. And yet the uh, Congressional Budget Office is still trying to tell you that, oh no, all of this, every penny of this is going into aid with the pie chart to show you this. But what was interesting about the pie chart is you look at the pie chart and it shows that $424 billion is going into these checks. Now... With that being said, that's actually not a completely unreasonable number. And I'm going to tell you why in just a second. It, it, it winds up being false, but to somebody observing, looking from the outside, looking in at the number $424 billion, it's not completely unreasonable to think about. And I did the math. And I assumed the population of the U.S. at $330 million. I believe it's just slightly lower than that. I think it's 320 and some change is what we're actually at. But I did the calculation with 330 million. And I multiplied $1,400 by 330 million. And I got 300, I'm sorry, $465 billion. That's why I said 424 billion isn't completely unreasonable for the checks because. You know, for $465 billion, you can give a $1,400 check to every man, woman, and child in this country. Now, why you need to pay attention to this, however, is the fact that not everybody's going to be eating these checks. In fact, anybody who's, well, to simplify this, anybody who makes uh, more than $75,000 a year isn't going to be getting jack shit from the government. And they actually tried to expand that even lower, but uh, anybody who get, makes more than 75 grand isn't going to get a goddamn penny out of any of this. And that cuts a lot of people out of this. Plus, kids aren't eligible for this either. They're, um, I believe the children are getting a smaller check and it's going to their parents. But, yeah, the kids aren't eligible for this. So that $465,000 drops away really fucking quick. And it makes you wonder where all the rest of that money went. It's administrative costs. It's so that we have the cost to go deposit this in people's banks. No, it isn't. You're... If that's the amount of administrative costs that you have, you are wasting a lot of money off in administrative costs, and you really need to start having bids on your contracts to see if you can get some of these costs down. Because, yeah, no, there is no way in hell that it costs almost as much to send a paper check out to every man, woman, and child in this country. 
as it does to get checks out to, let's be generous and say, 40% of the population. And by the way, they did market uh, the unemployment insurance in a separate bill. So, I mean, the checks aren't going into... They're not getting factored into the unemployment. That's on a separate piece on the pie chart. So there's a lot of money getting wasted in all of this. The legislation includes direct payments of up to $1,400 to most Americans, a $300 weekly boost to jobless benefits into September, and an expansion of the child tax credit for a year. It also puts new funding into COVID-19 vaccine distribution and testing rental assistance for struggling households, and K-12 schools for reopening costs. The package also includes $14 billion in payroll support for U.S. airlines, the third round of federal aid for the industry in exchange for not furloughing or cutting workers' pay rates through the September 30th. <laughs> Airline contractors were set aside $1 billion. Senate approval brings Biden's first legislative initiative closer to fruition, while the GOP and some uh, economists criticized the scope of the rescue package. As the U.S. vaccination pace picked up, Democrats said they needed decisive action to prevent a sluggish recovery and future economic pain. We will end this terrible plague and we will travel again and send our kids to school again and be together again unless the teachers' union tells us no, we're not allowed to send our kids to school yet. Senate uh, Majority Leader Chuck U. Schumer said before the vote, Our job right now is to help our, go our country get from the stormy present to the hopeful future. Senators passed the bill through budget reconciliation, a process that required no Republican support but every Democratic vote. Senate Democratic leaders had to wrangle disparate forces within their caucus to win unified support while trying to balance the needs to keep nearly all House Democrats on board to pass the plan next week. A disagreement within the party stalled the process for about 12 hours on Friday. Joe Manchin declined to back his party's proposal for unemployment aid, sending leaders scrambling to craft a compromise that could win his support and salvage the bill. Democrats settled on a plan to keep the current $300 per week jobless benefit boost in place through September 6th, while making the first $10,200 in assistance tax-free. The proposal trimmed the $400 weekly supplement through August 29th, passed in the House a week ago. The change... Oh, and by the way, the $1.9 trillion didn't go down. So that money went somewhere else. Follow the bouncing ball... That change, plus a separate Senate decision to limit the number of people receiving stimulus checks. Once again, that money going somewhere else. Follow the bouncing ball. Risk drawing the ire of progressives in the House, Biden endorsed the unemployment deal. After the Senate vote, the president said the process wasn't easy. It wasn't always pretty, but it was so desperately, desperately needed, man. The nation, it suffered for far too long. And I don't know if... If my buddies in New York and California can keep their people prisoner for much longer, he said. Biden estimated the direct uh, payments of up to $1,400, which will also go to dependents of eligible Americans, will start to come in this month. Snip, snip, snip. Final passage of the bill followed a voterama, where senators considered dozens of amendments to the package. 
Lawmakers at times dozing at their desks or putting their heads in their hands voted on changes through Friday night and into Saturday afternoon. Republicans teed up symbolic political votes, including failed amendments to bar direct payments to prison inmates. I want you to think about that sentence that I just said right there. Republicans teed up symbolic votes, including failed amendments to bar direct payments to prison inmates. So direct payments are going to prison inmates and CNBC didn't even feel the need to try to hide that from you. Or limit the amount of aid that falsely reported nursing home deaths due to COVID-19, which targeted New York. The GOP lambasted the relief package, describing it as a wasteful list of Democratic priorities. Well, where's the lie? Frequent targets of the bill uh, were the bill's $350 billion in state, local, and tribal aid, along with $170 billion set aside for K-12 schools and higher education. Yeah, it's listed on that pie chart I referenced as $170 billion to help K-12 schools open. Okay. How does it cost $170 billion for the principals across the country to walk up the building, put the key in the door, and turn it? You see where I'm going with that? This isn't a pandemic. I'm sorry. This isn't a pandemic rescue package. It's a parade of left-wing pet projects and that they're ramming through during a pandemic. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said on Friday, as if he hasn't done the same fucking thing. McConnell and others cited a stronger-than-expected February jobs report in arguing the U.S. does not need nearly $2 trillion more in stimulus. Even so, the U.S. had about 8.5 million fewer people employed than it did in the previous year. Biden cited the need to sustain the recovery, along with millions who stand to lose unemployment benefits without renewal of a pandemic-era program, in making his case for the relief bill on Friday. Without a rescue plan, these, these gains are going to go slow, he said. We can't afford one step forward and two steps back. Proponents of the bill also touted its potential to slash child poverty. So, that's what's... I mean, that's what the left-wing media is telling you that's in this bill. Now, there are various other things that are actually in this bill, but that's what the left-wing media is telling you in this. And I love the fact that they didn't even try to hide the fact that there's a check going to prison inmates. I love that. That's amazing. But what's more amazing is what the Washington Post had to say about this. Archived, of course... Biden's stimulus showers money on Americans, sharply cutting poverty in refining moves of the presidency. I'm sorry, defining moves. They put this little ticker over there and we can't read the headline. From Heather Long, Alyssa Fowers, and Andrew Van Dam. President Biden's stimulus package, which passed the Senate on Saturday, represents one of the most generous expansions of aid to the poor in recent history, while also showering thousands or in some cases, tens of thousands of dollars on American families navigating the coronavirus pandemic. And the clouds split, and the light came down, and the angels sang, Aah. 
The roughly $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, which only Democrats supported, spends most of the money on low-income and middle-class Americans and state and local governments, with very little funding going towards companies. <laughs> they actually believe that. Guys, they actually believe that. Oh, man. 9% of $1.9 trillion is going to help the American people out of this entire bill. The rest of it's going to their corporate donors. And the funniest thing is somebody tweeted out, uh, I believe it was on Saturday, when they found out that it passed 50 to 49 with no Republicans getting on board, that the check should come with a note that says, no Republicans that uh, voted for this. And I said, as soon as I saw that tweet, I replied back and I said, well, sure, I'm actually willing to go and let you do this. I like the idea of this note. But we also have to include a note that says, only 9% of the bill that just passed is going to help you the rest of it's going to our corporate donors, and we would also like for you to go and spend this check at the big box stores that are owned by our corporate donors. All this is doing is making the rich get fucking richer. The roughly $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, which only Democrats supported, spends most of the money on low-income and middle-class Americans and state and local governments, with very little funding going towards companies. The plan is one of the largest federal responses to a downturn Congress has enacted, and economists estimate it will boost growth this year to the highest level in decades and reduce the number of Americans living in poverty by a third because, hey, Walmart's going to get richer and they'll just go, they can all go and work for Walmart again. This round of aid enjoys wide support across the country, polls show, and it's likely to be felt quickly by low- and moderate-income Americans who stand to receive not just larger checks than before, but money from expanded tax credits, particularly geared towards parents, enhanced unemployment, rental assistance, food aid, and health insurance subsidies. Plus their buddies in local government in New York and California. But the ambitious legislation entails risks, both economic and political. The bill, which the House is expected to pass and send to Biden within days, injects the economy with so much money that some economists from both parties are warning that growth could overheat, leading to a bout of hard-to-contain inflation. It's weird. It's almost like... No, 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 that couldn't be. No, maybe... Guys, it's almost like independent media has been warning about inflation since the first stimulus started circling through Congress. Meanwhile, some businesses are saying that government aid has been so generous that they're already having trouble getting unemployed workers to return to work, a problem that could be exacerbated by the legislation. Unlike many other significant anti-poverty measures passed by Congress in history, this one has a short time horizon, with almost half, uh, all the relief rather, from families going away over the coming year. That could be an abrupt awakening for Americans who have grown accustomed to financial support since Congress moved swiftly to create stronger safety net at the start of the pandemic a year ago. 
It also lacks the bipartisan imprint of former President Trump's bills, which directed money in larger measure to the companies as well as individuals. Which is just kind of a backhanded slap to say, Hey, look, Trump donated to his big business buddies. <laughs> this legislative package will likely represent the most effective set of policies for reducing child poverty ever in one bill, especially among black and let. What does that say right there, guys? No, I'm not saying that. I am not saying that. Especially among black and Latino children, said Indivar Dutta Gupta, co-executive uh, director of the Georgetown Center on Poverty and uh, Inequality. The Biden administration is seeing this more like a wartime mobilization. They'll deal with any downside risks later on. No, they won't. They'll look at this, they'll see the downside risks, and they'll say, Oh, look, it's still the Trump economy. Oh, look, oh, look, look at that. And then once they extend it further, they'll go back and try to blame it back on the next guy. Unless the next guy comes in and starts getting a boost coming in, and then they'll say, Oh, it's the Biden or the Harris economy kicking in again. So, that's what WAPO has to say about this. We're already a half an hour into this. And all I've talked about is the stimulus. So, let's keep going here. I've got some more stuff to talk about. First and foremost, we have to get onto the little rider that they tried to force onto the stimulus bill that failed miserably here. From Politico, eight Democrats defect on $15 an hour minimum wage hike. From Burgess Everett. The Senate on Friday is set to squash a bid to track a $15 minimum wage to President Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion coronavirus aid bill, with eight Democratic caucus members joining all 50 Republicans in rejecting the change. The Senate parliamentarian had ruled that the wage increases could not be added to the bill and approved by a simple majority of senators, despite House passage of the provision last week. After Senate Democrats stripped it from the COVID package, a group of progressive senators led by Bernie Sanders, my pudding cup, forced a vote on the policy change anyway. That vote remained held open Friday after, uh, I'm sorry, at a tally of 42 to 58, while senators negotiated on other issues, but it already showed that even though the Democrat caucus overwhelmingly supports the effort of gradually raising the wage floor to 15, Raising the wages faces significant hurdles within the party. Even if the legislative filibuster were eliminated, as progressives are calling for help to raise the wage with a simple Senate majority, Democrats are leagues away from having the votes to get the nation to a $15 an hour uh, hourly rate. Good. Senators Joe Manchin, John Tester, Jen, uh, Jeannie Shaheen of New Hampshire, Kirsten Cinema, Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire, voted against the proceedings, though the tally remains open. So did two close Biden allies, Chris Coons and Tom Carper of Delaware. Senator Angus King of Maine, who caucuses with Senate Democrats, also opposed it. Cinema indicated that she supports raising the wage, which last increased in 2009 because she understands what it's like to face tough choices while working to meet your family's most basic needs. 
well, get the government out of the way and we'll start to see those wages go back up, just like we did for three of the last four years. But she said a standalone debate on the issue made more sense than putting it in a coronavirus relief package. Senators in both parties have shown support for raising the federal minimum wage, and the Senate should hold an open debate and amendment process on raising the minimum wage separate from the COVID-focused reconciliation bill, she said. Progressives were not pleased by the defeat on the Senate floor. Sanders vowed to keep pressing the matter. If, if, any, if any senator believes that this is the last time, they will cast a vote on whether or not to give a raise to 32 million Americans. Then, then they are sorely mistaken, said the Vermonter, who chairs the budget committee. We're, we're going to keep bringing it up, and we're going to get it done because it is what the American people demand and need. Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, who is running for the Senate in 2022, said that every single senator who voted against the $15 an hour minimum wage today should be forced to live on $7.25 an hour so they can demonstrate to all of us how it's possible. To be fair, I think they should all be living on the seven seven twenty five an hour minimum wage just because they think they have power over people. I'm actually with you, Fetterman, but for a completely different reason. You're doing it out of spite. I'm doing it because, well, the government shouldn't be a career. The vote was not an exact extrapolation of where senators stand on raising the wage. Rather than a straight up or down vote on the issue, Sanders' amendment sought to override the parliamentarian's ruling that the wage increase couldn't be included on the COVID package, which requires only 50 votes in a tiebreaker from Vice President Kamala Harris to succeed thanks to the protections of a process known as budget reconciliation, which we have talked to death on this channel. So yeah, they're, they're not actually doing this and doing a regular vote for this. They were just trying to force this through on the reconciliation once again. And it didn't belong on this bill. It was just a rider that they tried to shore, uh, force through because they knew that they couldn't get it past the filibuster. Let's keep going here. Liberals meltdown on Twitter over video of Senator Cinema's thumbs-down vote against the minimum wage hike. From Carlos Garcia. I want to see if there's a video of this. There is... Liberals who were hoping that Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona might vote in support of the minimum wage hike were disappointed and many angrily turned to social media to register their outrage. I mean, turning to social media to register your outrage has been a part of the American dream since MySpace. So I don't know why this, this is a headline, why this is a news story, but still something to go and watch. The openly bisexual senator, which, why the fuck does that matter, is also a moderate Democrat on many issues, owing to the demographics of the state she represents. On Friday, she voted alongside seven other Democrats to kill the proposal from Senator Sanders to include the wage hike in the latest coronavirus relief package. Cinema's critics were especially outraged because of the way she entered her vote. Miss Cinema, Miss Cinema. Miss Cinema, Miss Cinema. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's fucking based. Miss Cinema, Miss Cinema.
Did cinema really have to vote against a $15 an hour minimum wage for 24 million people like this? Well, technically she didn't. She voted against making it as a writer. Kirsten Cinema is the most vapid Democratic politician to come along in quite a while. Her stick of funky hair and bright clothing as a mask for her apparent sociopathy is downright horrifying, tweeted Emma Weisland, a progressive commentator. Cinema just jauntily gave the middle finger to tens of millions of low-wage workers, tweeted another critic. Kirsten Cinema giving the $15 an hour minimum wage a gladiator-style thumbs down would have been a left Twitter joke a week ago, tweeted Ken Kleppenstein, a reporter at The Intercept. No matter what you think of Kirsten Cinema's votes, these optics are horrible, tweeted journalist Yashir Ali. No, I thought they were fucking funny. You may think people don't deserve to be paid more, but you don't need to make a show of it. That's not the issue at hand, people. The issue at hand is to try to override the parliamentarian. To try and change the rules once again. And Cinema and Mansion have both been very adamant about the fact that they're not about to go out and change the rules to go out and give away millions of dollars and billions of pieces of legislation. to make a progressive wish list come true on a simple majority vote. If you want to do something that's going to affect 330 million people, you should at least be able to get the representation of all of them. I'm sorry. If you want simple majorities, go to the fucking house. Incredible. On the day she votes to block and raise the minimum wage for 32 million working Americans, Kirsten Cinema not only walks it into the Senate with a big chocolate cake, but posts on Facebook about a future getaway to Bora Bora. Let them eat cake, she indeed tweeted progressive activist Kai Newkirk. Yeah, the cake thing was probably a bad optic portion of this. I didn't see the cake, but I, I saw people talking about it. One more time. Miss Cinema, Miss Cinema. There we go. All right, so that's what we're seeing from that. Let's keep going. Let the people vote. Biden signs executive order to expand voting access. From NBC's Ellen Smith. President Joe Biden signed an executive order on Sunday calling on federal agencies to expand voting access as part of his administration's efforts to promote and defend the right to vote for all Americans who are legally entitled to participate in the elections. And then the Supreme Court got out, opened up the Constitution, and said, hmm, okay, yeah, right here. Article 2, Section 1. Okay, this is unconstitutional. It is the responsibility of the federal government to expand access to an education about voter registration and election information and combat misinformation in order to enable all eligible Americans to participate in our democracy. The order read. I don't know why I read that in Biden's voice. He has no idea what's in this executive order. Some progressives in his department went out and wrote this for him and put it down and said, Okay, Grandpa, here's your pen. Here's your pen. Go sign this, please. 
and looked up and probably said, eh, what am I signing? No, no, it's it's going to be good for the American people, Grandpa. Just just sign this here. No, no, right there. R for Robinette. There you go. Biden announced the order in virtual remarks played before the Martin and Coretta King Unity Breakfast, which commemorates the 1965 Bloody Sunday crossing of the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, where black demonstrators fighting for access to the ballot box were beaten by police along their march. The order comes days after the House passed H.R. 1, a wide-ranging package of electoral and ethics reforms that Biden said he would sign into law should it make it through the Senate. It also comes as more Republican legislatures across the country seek to enact more restrictive voting measures after former President Donald Trump's defeat. In his remarks on Sunday, Biden called those GOP efforts an all-out assault on the right to vote. During the current legislative session, elected officials in 43 states have already introduced more than 250 bills to make it harder for the American to vote, he said. We cannot let them succeed. Biden called H.R. 1 a landmark uh, piece of legislation that is urgently needed to protect the right to vote. Our integrity of our elections and repair and strengthen our, our democracy. And yet, the executive branch doesn't have the authority to do this. Congress doesn't have the authority to do this. But the people who are doing it are the people that NBC doesn't like. So, I anticipate this becoming a, well, no, I don't anticipate this going anywhere or becoming a fight anywhere because the Supreme Court can slap this down in a second. Article 2, Section 1, it's, it's not hard. It's the same reason that they can't pass voter ID on a federal level. It's the exact same reason. But the Supreme Court can slap this down, and they do not have 60 votes to get this through the Senate. So that's what we're seeing from this. All right, from Politico. This came to me from Elaine over on the Gilded server, which is linked in the description. If you are over on the YouTube, I don't have it linked in everything else yet, but if you're over on the YouTube, it's linked in the description. Come back in and join us out there, and you can throw articles at me, and I'll read them up on the air, or I'll see if I can find something that's green check verified to go along with it. So let's see what we have here. Biden backs new war powers vote in Congress, White House says, from Brian Bender and Andrew Desiderio. I don't know why I have Wheel of Death going here. I have no idea. President Joe Biden intends to work with Congress to repeal the war authorizations that have underpinned the U.S. military operations ac across the globe for the past two decades and negotiate a new one that reigns in the open-ended nature of Americans' foreign wars, the White House said on Friday. After he dropped a bomb in Syria and agitated the need for military action over in the Middle East. In a statement to Politico, Press Secretary Jen Psaki said the president wants to ensure that the authorizations for the use of military force currently on the books are replaced with a narrow and specific framework that will ensure that we can protect Americans from terrorist threats while ending the forever wars. <laughs> okay. Let me remind you that Joe Biden has been in the Senate for 47 years and has never met a military action that he didn't like. 
The Olive Branch to Capitol Hill marks the first time as president Biden has publicly endorsed jettisoning resolutions passed by Congress a generation ago that have been used to justify military operations in places few envisioned at the time. The AUMFs include one passed the September 11th terrorist attack and another passed in the fall of 2002, ahead of the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq in 2003. It comes just two days after a bipartisan group of senators led by Tim Kaine and Todd Young introduced a bill to repeal the 2002 authorization for the use of military force and one passed in 1991 ahead of the first Iraq war. Senators proposed the measures amid bipartisan anger over Biden's decision to launch retaliatory strikes against the Iran-backed militia groups in Syria last week. Without first seeking congressional approval, the authorization, uh, operation rather frustrated many of Biden's allies on the Hill and renewed uh, long-standing concerns among Democrats and Republicans alike that Congress has uh, abdicated its constitutional role in declaring war and authorizing military operations. Now, mind you, there are a lot of people in Congress who are getting rich off of defense contractors who got a lot of kickbacks over the fact that they fought and stalled the withdrawal from Afghanistan. I don't like the AUMF any more than anything else, but I feel it's more dangerous to put these powers back into Congress. I don't know what the right answer is to this either. I'm not even going to come back out and try to pretend that I do. I have no idea what the right answer is to something like this because Congress is getting paid off more from the war powers than than the executive branches. So I don't know where we go with this, but it looks like they are going to come back and try to get this pushed along through, and Biden's just going to go along with it because he says he can. And I do have to wonder what their angle is. All right, I've got one here from the Daily Wire for you guys. Report, FBI finding no evidence of members of Congress in contact with Capitol rioters during the attack. And this is this has interested me a little bit here because I don't trust the FBI right now. I think the FBI needs to be disbanded because of everything we saw with 2016. And I do look at this as sort of another witch hunt coming on, especially reading some of the things that I've read as far as depositions and um, arrest warrants that come straight from the FBI. Forgive me for not trusting them, but uh, yeah, I have no reason to trust them. This is from Emily Zanotti. An FBI investigation into the lead-up to the January 6th attack on the U.S. Uh, Capitol found no evidence that members of Congress were in contact with protesters turned rioters during the incident, according to the New York Times, a former newspaper. The investigation did, however, turn up a uh, phone call between the Proud Boys and someone inside the Trump White House, though it is not yet clear who that individual was or whether they had contact with the president per the outlet's Saturday report. Shortly after the January 6th attack, Democrat members of Congress demanded the FBI investigate their Republican colleagues to determine whether any member of the GOP aided or abetted the Capitol rioters, either before or during a planned pro-Trump rally, slated to take place while the Senate was voting to certify the Electoral College results, declaring Joe Biden the winner of the November presidential election. Even as Democrats on Wednesday impeached President Trump, they turned their attention to allegations that Republican members of Congress encouraged 
last week's attempt at insurrection, possibly providing help that enabled the mob who stormed the Capitol, the Washington Post reported on January 13th. Well, Congress may not have, but the Capitol Police sure did. Their accomplices in this White House will be held responsible, Representative Jerry Nadler told the outlet at the time, citing a report from another Democratic Congresswoman, Representative Mikey Shereel, who said in a Facebook Live broadcast that she saw Republicans who had groups coming through the Capitol that I saw on January 5th for reconnaissance for the next day. She said some of her GOP colleagues abetted Trump and incited the violent crowd. So there was somebody, and once again, they have no idea who it is, but there was somebody in the White House that got a call from somebody in the Proud Boys. There are no details on what are in this call. There are no details on who this person was. There's no details on who the Proud Boy was. But this was enough to incite a trending Twitter hashtag and possibly a mob on Twitter on Friday when this was released. So the progressives are out for blood at this point, and we may actually see something come back out of this. From CNN, House impeachment manager Eric Swalwell sues Trump and close allies over Capitol riot in second major insurrection lawsuit from Caitlin Palance and Devon Cole. Former House impeachment manager Eric Swalwell has sued former President Trump and his son Donald Trump Jr., Rudolph Giuliani, and Republican Rep. Mo Brooks in a second major lawsuit seeking to hold Trump and his allies accountable for inciting the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Now, I got to balls and strike this one. First off, the strike. This is actually the way that you're supposed to be doing this. I would have gone for a criminal charge rather than a civil suit and see if you can get him in front of a grand jury, but I suspect that the grand jury is going to laugh him out of court if they try to bring this in front of a grand jury, especially with the evidence that they have in front of them. But the fact of the matter is they're doing this as a private citizen, not trying to use the powers of the government to throw another failed impeachment. But the ball is that this looks just completely like another piece of fucking TDS bullshit. Maybe I've got that backwards. Maybe I've got the balls and strikes backwards and don't know which way I'm going to go on this. But yeah, this is just another piece of bullshit TDS to try and make sure that the news cycle focuses on Trump instead of the current occupants of the White House and the Naval Observatory. The new lawsuit filed on Friday by Swalwell, a California Democrat who has gas like a water buffalo, who helped to lead impeachment arguments against Trump for inciting insurrection, follows a similar suit filed last month by Representative Benny Thompson against Trump, Giuliani, and the extremist groups The Oath Keepers and Proud Boys. Swalwell's case makes some of the claims that Thompson's citing a civil rights law meant to counter the Ku Klux Klan's intimidation of elected officials. But it also alleges Trump, Trump Jr., Giuliani, and Brooks broke Washington, D.C. laws, including an anti-terrorism act, by inciting the riot, Still don't see any evidence of that one. And that they aided and abetted violent rioters and inflicted emotional distress on the members of Congress. The defendants, in short, were uh, convinced the mob that something was occurring that, if actually true, might indeed justify violence, and then sent that mob to the Capitol with violence lace calls for immediate action, the lawsuit in Washington, D.C.'s federal district court alleges. The lawsuits will unfurl, 
as Trump bases mounting pressure in the investigations by House committees that seeks his financial records, as well as in criminal probes related to his private businesses and his post-election actions. He has not been charged with any crime. But yet, they're going to try. They're going to find, excuse me, they're going to find something on him. You bring me the man and I will find the crime. All right, speaking of Trump, we got to take this tweet here from Right Side Broadcasting. YouTube says you can't see Trump's CPAC speech. It's too dangerous. We got suspended for it. We're playing it live right now on Rumble Video just because we can. Which I'm actually thinking about getting on Rumble and uh, Odyssey too, just so we got some more backups here. I know I've uh, seen some people over in the DLive are talking about the fact that DLive is grabbled, which it kind of is, so... Definitely we'll look at that, and uh, that may be coming up on the on the docket coming forward here. But uh, yeah, I'm kind of glad at this point I didn't take any pieces of the speech and put them on the Red Net show on Monday. I was thinking about it, but it just we ran up on time, and I didn't... We were, I think, at, I think we were at two hours and ten minutes at the end of that last week, too. So we were up on time already, and uh, I had still only heard about half of the speech. But yeah, they... They suspended right side broadcasting just because they played the speech. All right. From the Daily News, the New York Daily News, archived because of ad blocker. Representative Maloney pushes Senate to quickly approve USPS board noms in bid to oust the joy. From Michael McAuliffe. We will erase every trace of this person. We will unperson him, and everything he's ever touched will also be erased. This is 1984-level shit here, folks. New York Representative Carolyn Maloney really wants to see Trump-era U.S. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy removed from his post, and she's leaning on the Senate to make it possible. Last month, President Biden nominated three postal experts to the governing board of the U.S. Postal Service, a move that could alter the course of the agency grappling with delivery delays and rumored cuts under former President Donald Trump. And your taxes go the fuck up. In a letter obtained by the Daily News, Maloney, a Democrat and chairwoman of the House Oversight Committee, asked Senator Gary Peters, head of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, to hold confirmation hearings as soon as possible. The joy a Republican megadonor to Trump took over the Postal Service last summer and immediately instituted a series of changes, including significant reductions in overtime and weekend staffing, that was blamed for a disastrous fall-off in service as Americans were in lockdown and trying to vote by mail. But all the provisions were set to happen after the election. They didn't tell you that part. After the election, the Postal Service came into the spotlight again as it struggled to handle the holiday season surge of packages of mail, leading to additional condemnation to join other postal leaders, have acknowledged and pledged to attend the delays, saying the agency fell short of expectations. Democrats demanded DeJoy be fired or resign, but DeJoy, who serves at the pleasure of the Postal Board of Governors, remains in place. And yeah, that little secret there that nobody tells you the fact that, uh, yes... All of the stuff that they're trying to blame for the mail-in voting fiasco and everything else was not set to take effect until after the election. Just so you know. But honestly, the post office is fucked. It really is at this point. And this is 
coming from somebody who actually believes that the post office is a legitimate function of government. It's just the way that they managed it and their money and the government's used as a piggy bank for so long. And the fact that they're, I mean, the biggest cost of the post office right now is in operations. The biggest cost of the post office is pension. Because these people have a lifetime pension at this point. And people are living longer and longer. They get to retire earlier than most people do, which is probably good because there's a lot of stress that comes with working in the post office, but they get to retire earlier than most people do on a full pension for life. And we wonder why the post office is in dire straits. I don't think it needs to go away. I just think it needs a strong pension reform. A very, very strong pension reform is what, what's needed for this. And we could probably get this back up and running to a point where it's functional again. It's not going to be profitable. It's a government entity. So get the profitable thing, get that right out of your head. Because that's never going to happen. Not for the post office. But we could get it back to the point where it's functional. Operational. So they're trying to throw him out uh, here. Let's grab one archive from The Independent. Georgia GOP leaders who stood up to Trump backing uh, back voting bills. Uh, this is via AP News. So I guess I could have taken this from AP instead of uh, archiving The Independent. But let's see what they have to say. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger won wide praise last fall for firmly rejecting then-President Donald Trump's false claims of voter fraud. But now those claims have spawned an effort in tightening voting laws, one that could affect their political fortunes. The two Republicans are taking a softer approach. Both men say they support Georgia Republicans' efforts to enact an ID requirement for absentee voting that would do away with the state's signature-matching system, which Trump heavily attacked. Their positions illustrate how central tightening uh, access to the ballot has become in the Georgia, um, bleh, in the GOP agenda, embraced even among those who have publicly refuted claims of fraud of stolen elections. But it also highlights the difficult politics for Republicans as they weigh how far to go to that end while the bills being pushed in Georgia and several other states have the backing of the GOP base that embraces Trump. They also could stir up Democratic backlash, not to mention make it harder for the GOP voters to cast ballots. For Raffensperger and Kemp, both up for re-election in a state where Democrats are ascendant, that's a dual threat that could lead to defeat in 2022. No, that's... Democrats are not ascendant in Georgia. Everybody who moved to Georgia to go vote in the runoff election where nothing bad happened, wink, wink, honk, honk, has now gone back to their home because they realize, oh, shit, they're, they're so backwards here. We, we can't live here. But hey, we, we got the support. We got what we wanted. Kemp, Raffensperger, and their aides are working quietly with Republican legislators to craft changes to absentee and early voting because uh, they believe can strike a balance that may mean jettisoning or at least relaxing some of the proposals circulating in the Republican-run General Assembly, which includes scrapping an automatic voter registration law and banning early voting on Sundays a move that appeared aimed at ending souls to the polls of voter, run, uh, voter drives run by black churches. So, yeah, after this election, now they want to go tighten everything up. 
So that's what we see from that. I got another one here from NBC. Trump sends cease and desist letters to GOP campaign committees. From Monica Alba and Lauren Egan. Attorneys for former President Trump sent cease and desist letters on Friday to three Republican organizations asking them to stop using the former president's name and likeness in fundraising appeals and merchandise, a Trump advisor said on Saturday. The letters were sent to Republican National Committee, the National Republican Congressional Committee, and the National Republican Senate Committee, arms of the party tasked with raising money and shaping messaging, among other things, for the midterm elections and beyond. But don't worry, the GOP hates uh, Donald Trump now. Just ask the progressives. The committees did not immediately respond to NBC News' request for comment. Politico was the first to report the news. Since Trump left office, the committees have repeatedly referenced him in emails asking for donations, hoping to be the president's po uh, sorry, hoping to use the president's popularity among some segments of the party to bolster their war chest as they work to win back control of the House and Senate in 2022. <clears throat> Trump, however, has been reluctant to offer his support to the party establishment after he lost the presidency and was then impeached for a second time. Ten House Republicans voted with Democrats to impeach Trump and seven Senate Republicans voted to convict him for allegedly inciting the deadly mob that attacked the Capitol on January 6th intent on disrupting the electoral vote. This is going to be my new citation needed, please. Citation needed, please. So, and yeah, absolutely he should. He absolutely should have this cease and desist letter out there. Because I, it's not right for them. It's not right for them to come out and say that they wanted him out. Like Mitch McConnell, who will do whatever is going to give Mitch McConnell the most power. When Republicans look at Trump and say, well, nobody likes us unless we're backing Trump. But we're still going to vote to kick him out of the party because we didn't like him. But we're still going to use his imaging for fundraising. No, this is all a bunch of bullshit. He'll put his name behind who he wants to put his name behind. He's already done it for Tim Scott. He'll support who he wants to support. He'll reject who he wants to reject. And the party proper really has no place in doing this. So good on him. All right. From the Hill. Trump promises to travel to Alaska to campaign against Murkowski. From Tal Axelrod. Former President Trump vowed to travel to Alaska to campaign against Senator Lisa Murkowski next year as she seeks re-election. Murkowski, who first took office in 2002, has been a longtime critic of the former president and top GOP wildcard in recent votes. She bucked her party this week by announcing that she'd back Representative Deb Halen's nomination to serve as Interior Secretary, and she was one of seven Senate Republicans to vote to convict Trump in his impeachment trial last month. She is the only one of seven who is seeking re-election in 2022. Yeah, she's probably done at this point. Is that Trump? Yeah, that's Trump. I will not be endorsing, under any circumstance, the failed candidate from the great state of Alaska, Lisa Murkowski. She represents her state badly and her country even worse. I do not know where other people will be next year. But I know where I'll be. I'll be in Alaska campaigning against a very disloyal and bad senator, Trump said in a statement to The Hill. 
her vote to advance radical left Democrat Deb Haaland for Secretary of the Interior is yet another example of how Murkowski is not standing up for Alaska. Great. Cell beating those ads coming up here in the near future. All right. From the New York Post. 108 illegal immigrants in Texas who tested positive for COVID reportedly released. From Mark Moore. More than 100 illegal immigrants who tested positive for the coronavirus after their arrival in Texas since late January have been released by the Border Patrol in the Lone Star State and are free to travel to other parts of the U.S., according to reports. Felipe Romero, a spokesman for the border city of Brownsville, told Fox News that they're telling the migrants who tested positive to follow CDC guidelines to quarantine and maintain social distance, but that Brownsville doesn't have the authority to stop them. Wow. That's special. Thank you, ABG. You couldn't have found another time to go and do that. To quarantine and maintain social distance, but that Brownsville doesn't have the authority to stop them from traveling to the rest of the country. He said that 108 positives account for the 6.3% of the total migrants who received rapid tests at the city's main bus terminal, a program that began on January 25th. Some of the migrants described to Noticias Telemundo Investiga how they were tested at the border and then allowed to hit the streets despite a positive test for the coronavirus. So, you have to sit in your house forever, lose your job, have your company shut down, lose your small business, lock your doors, and never go out unless it's for absolute essential stuff like weed. You can't go to church. You can't go to Christmas. You can't go to Thanksgiving. You can't go to a New Year's party. But 108 positive tests for COVID can just be released out into the wild and, well, good luck. Nobody's afraid of this fucking thing. Nobody's afraid of this fucking thing. All right, from the Daily Wire. Biden admin allows child migrant detention centers to open at 100% capacity, eyes giving them a new name, reports. There's your ministry of propaganda right there. We're just going to call them something different. The Biden administration is reportedly allowing detention facilities for migrant children to open at 100% capacity as the border crisis continues to intensify. The move, which was reportedly approved by the CDC, scraps the uh, previous guidance that dictated the detention facilities could be occupied at 50% to practice social distancing due to the coronavirus, coronavirus pandemic. The fact... No, that's Axios. Never mind. The fact that the country's premier health advisory agency is permitting a change in COVID-19 protocols indicates the scale of the immigration crisis, Axios reported. Shelters have been getting an average of 321 children per day, up from 47 per day in the first week of January. Well, right. Biden came in and said, it's okay. It's okay. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Just just come on in and come on. Just, just make sure you vote the right way, okay? and expected to need 20,000 beds to accommodate an anticipated record number of child migrants. 
A CDC draft memo says the situation on the border has grown dire and that officials need to be prepared to see an increase in coronavirus cases. As a result, at this time, CBP does not have an adequate space for physical distancing, quarantine of persons exposed to COVID-19, or isolation of ill or infected persons, says the memo reviewed by Axios. As of March 1st, 2021, four CBP sectors are over COVID-adjusted capacity. So, they're opening right back up, but hey, there's no problem at the border. No, nothing going on. All right, another one here from the New York Post. Two more women accuse Governor Andrew Cuomo of inappropriate behavior from uh, Katyan Boniello. I swear, and I've got this tweet queued up because we'll be talking about this tonight, that there was a Now This reporter, the tweet's in the Gilded. There is a Now This reporter who legitimately came out and said, these women are Trump supporters just trying to get Governor Andy Cuomo out so they can get a Republican installed and he can pardon Donald Trump. That's actually where they're going with this. And once again, never mind the fact that he killed grandma and grandpa in the fucking nursing home. But hey, let's just go let him keep getting me too'd and me too'd. And hey, we'll watch this instead of uh, the investigation into the nursing home. All right. That's all I have to say on that because I don't care. You know what? We'll look into this again. Two more women came forward Saturday to accuse Governor Cuomo of sexually harassing behavior, including a former press aide who describes struggling to free herself from his repeated hugs and a young assistant who now says he left her feeling like just a skirt. Former press aide Karen Hinton endured a very long, too long, too tight, too intimate embrace from Cuomo in a dimly lit Los Angeles hotel room in December of 2000, she told the Washington Post. The married Hinton pulled away, but he pulls me back for another intimate embrace. She told the paper, I thought at that moment it could lead to a kiss. It could lead to other things, so I just pull away again and I leave. At the time, Cuomo led the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. A current rep for Cuomo strongly denied Hinton's allegations to the newspaper, claiming this did not happen. Hinton's claims are made all the more startling, given that her husband is a lobbyist, Howard Glazer, a longtime Cuomo ally and uh, confidant who worked as his director of state operations and senior policy advisor until 2014. The other new accuser, Annalise, is a policy and operations aide who worked for the governor from 2013 to 2015, said he's behaved inappropriately while on the job in Albany. The governor called her sweetheart and asked if she had a boyfriend, List recalled for the Wall Street Journal. List uh, said Cuomo touched her on her lower back during an event, once kissed her hand, and asked if she was dating. It's not appropriate, really, in any setting, she told the newspaper. The Post could not immediately release, uh, reach lists. Liz is the third former state employee and fourth woman overall to accuse the governor. Of varying degrees of sexual harassment, Hinton brings the total accusers to five. And yet, we have not talked one word about the nursing home scandal that Lachisa James brought out to the forefront. This is a distraction at this point. This is something that the Newspapers can come out and talk about and not have to talk about what went on with the nursing homes and how Cuomo won an Emmy 
for killing Grandma. So, that's what we see from that. From Newsweek. Chris Cuomo's black on the inside comment caps horrible week for his family from Alexandra Garrett. Chris Cuomo, CNN news anchor and brother of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, was criticized on Twitter this week, uh, weekend rather, after he joked that he's black on the inside while talking to journalist and CNN colleague Don Lemon. I was hoping they'd show the video. Apparently they're not. That's fucking lame. The comment came after he was singing the theme song to Good Times, a television show popular in the 70s about a black family living in Chicago. Laughing, Lemon asked Chris Cuomo if he knew the words to the song, to which Chris Cuomo responded, You know, I'm black on the inside. Well, switch the parties. That's all I have to say. Switch the parties and see if you still feel the same way. Let's keep going. From AZ Central, a division of USA Today, archived because USA Today doesn't allow you to read their articles if you have an ad blocker on. Representative Greg Stanton introduces a bill to help keep renters evictions during COVID-19 off-credit reports. From Catherine Rieger. Now see, everyone keeps talking about a stimulus. Everyone keeps talking about a way to get the stimulus out there and get cash in people's hands. Not enough to pay rent in some places, but cash in people's hands. This dude is string, uh, thinking outside of the box in a way to keep the economy going without giving out cash. This is from Catherine Rieger. Renters struggling during the pandemic could get help in keeping evictions off their credit records under legislation introduced in Congress by Representative Greg Stanton of Arizona. The move to protect tenants from long-term financial problems related to evictions is supported by many housing advocates. H.R. 1594, the COVID-19 Eviction Consumer Report Fairness Act, would require all credit reporting groups to exclude from uh, consumer credit reports, evictions, any information related to evictions, or any proceedings seeking evictions between March 13, 2020 until 120 days after President Biden terminates the national emergency. That's, that's actually a good idea. Because people will still be able to go out and rent. You know, once again... Ben Shapiro comes out and says, well, gang, this is, this, this isn't you going out and losing your job because you're stupid. This is you, you losing your job because the government uh, was stupid. And, you know, the government uh, drove the F-150 through your house. And now the government's responsible for it. And once again, I, I do keep out coming out and saying that the federal government isn't really responsible for this. But this should stand up. But in all honesty, this does involve interstate commerce. So this is a purview of the federal government. And this is a good idea. This is a damn good idea. Because otherwise you're going to see a housing crash like you have never seen before. Without this important relief for renters, our credit reporting system could continue to needlessly punish hardworking families for years to come. Stanton said about the bill, which was introduced on Thursday. When you're at your lowest unsure, if you're able to keep a roof over your family's head, you likely aren't considering the long-term impact of an eviction on your personal credit. 
the National Housing Law Project, the National Low Income Housing Coalition, the Southwest Fair Housing Council, and Community Legal Services of Arizona support the legislation which would amend the Fair Credit Reporting Act. In Arizona, at least 200,000 households are at risk of eviction, according to a November 2020 report from the University of Arizona Innovation for Justice Program and the National Low Income Housing Coalition. Yeah, I like this idea. I really do. Your government shut your uh, job down, and you might go and look in another state to go find a new job, but you have that eviction hanging over your head because you couldn't pay the rent. That's some thinking right there. I like this. I do like this idea. I really do. So we will see if that uh, gains any ground. All right. From MSN, uh, I'm sorry, from Fox News, MSNBC's Joy Reid, conservatives will trade tax cuts to openly say the N-word. From David Rutz. Far-left MSNBC host Joy Reid's outrageous week continued on Wednesday when she tweeted that conservatives would all love to openly say the N-word and felt oppressed because they couldn't be openly racist. To say it again, I'm sorry, I'll say it again. People on the right would trade all the tax cuts for the ability to openly say the N-word like in the good old days to them not being able to op be openly racist and discriminatory without consequences is oppression. Trump is the avatar for this freedom. Joy, tell me one thing that Trump said that was racist while he was president. Reed made the comment while responding to MSNBC contributor Jason Johnson, who was himself responding to a tweet from the former New York Times, a former newspaper, opinion editor Barry Weiss. Well, I mean, what is it that Clavin calls the New York Times uh, op-ed page? Oh yeah, knucklehead row. Johnson asserted Weiss was trying to defend the idea of privately using racial slurs when she discussed how many people feel the need to self-censor for fear of uh, being reprisal. A center-left writer, Weiss is loathed by many figures on the left, particularly for her views on free speech. Yeah, I don't think that's the problem here, because if they're saying it, then they're still saying it out in private. The internet being forever and now coming out and trying to cancel these people who did something 10 years ago is putting a little bit of pause in people, but for the most part, no. This is, this is just a stupid fucking virtue signal. All right, from the blaze, online mob attacks Mumford and Sons banjoist for congratulating Andy Ngo, label musician a Nazi, and attempt to cancel him. This guy, this guy is a fascist. From Paul Saka. Winston Marshall, the banjoist and lead guitarist for the folk rock band Mumford & Sons, experienced a tidal wave of criticism and hatred for uh, simply complimenting conservative journalist Andy Ngo on his new book. Waves of furious music fans attacked Marshall on Twitter for an innocuous tweet. On Saturday, Marshall congratulated Ngo on his new book, Unmasked, inside Antifa's radical plan to destroy America. Congratulations to Mr. Andy Ngo, finally... Had time to read your important book, You're a Brave Man, Marshall wrote on Twitter, which he later deleted after he was swarmed with hateful messages. Yo thanked Marshall for the support. 
the worst part, because I saw this trending, and I looked at it and looked into it. And I saw a bunch of neckbearded hipsters, and yes, I do understand the irony of me saying neckbearded hipsters, with long hair, horn-rimmed glasses, and a beard. When all these neckbearded hipsters who tripped all over themselves, and I mean, I worked in Madison for three, four years. I saw the kind of people who were running out to buy Mumford & Sons albums, the kind of people who were going out to the little bars and playing Mumford & Sons out there. I saw the kind of people who were looking that with their big fucking Rasta hat and all the other stuff for this. These are now the people who are coming out, and they're all over Twitter on Saturday saying, well, Mumford & Sons sucked anyway, so good riddance to them. And it's just interesting to see. I don't really have a lot to say with this other than the fact that, yeah, they jumped on him and he deleted the tweet. And all these people who loved the band up until he said that now are trying to pretend that they hated it the whole time all along anyway. That's a little bit rich. A little bit fun to see, too. All right. I got two, uh, one more here, then we'll do something that restores my faith in humanity. And we'll head on out of here. From the Washington Times who is not green check verified, but I could not find this anywhere green check verified. Is this going to load? Yes, it is. Canceled. Conservative comic strip Mallard, uh, Mallard Fillmore dropped an unprecedented move. From Valerie Richardson. <clears throat> the conservative comic strip Mallard Fillmore has been plucked. Bruce Tinsley, creator of the 27-year-old cartoon, said he, he was told this week by his syndication company that Garnett newspapers across the country simultaneously dropped the comic over two strips critical of President Biden and transgender partis uh, participation in women's sports. It was a big shock, Mr. Tinsley told the Washington Times. From what I'm hearing, it was unprecedented. My syndicate has never seen anything like that. He said officials at King Features, which syndicates the cartoons, said that a decision was made at the Gannett corporate level, and they weren't sure exactly why, except that they were sure it was about those two cartoons. The two comics ran February 19th to 20th. The first depicts Mr. Biden musing, For too long, segregation sullied women's sports. They were restricted to women. Thank goodness those dark days are over. In the second cartoon, Mr. Biden says, I hear what you, the American people, want me to do. Kill fossil fuel jobs, devalue America's labor, and help more transgender athletes beat the shit out of biological females. Certainly, Mallard Fillmore has been known to ruffle feathers, but Mr. Tinsley said he didn't think they were stripped, referring to Mr. Biden's January 20th executive order on gender identity and sexual orientation were over the top. I've thought a million times, this is it. I don't even know if I'm going to turn this in, said Mr. Tinsley, referring to previous comics. But of all the cartoons, it vaguely centers on Biden's doing that as his first executive order. There certainly was nothing derogatory about transgender people. It was just about what I see as a really unfair environment in sports. Well, I don't know who still gets their comics from the newspaper anymore. I mean, Android and Apple both have a comic app that puts these up every day. You can go look at that. And they're free. And you can still find Mallard Fillmore on that too, by the way. I looked. And it's still there. It's still funny. So you can go and check that out. It's uh, depending on your apps. I, don't, uh, I believe it's Comics Go is the one on Android. And that might be the one on Apple too. So 
you can go check that out and continue to read Mallard Fillmore because, I mean, we're going to do a Streisand effect. And I'm going to tell people about this so it gets more Streisand effect, so more people go and run and watch the strip. But that's what we see for that, and that's going to be it for the news. And the last thing we do on Monday is something that restores my faith in humanity, which, looking back into this and seeing, I said before, I talked about, I talked at the end of last week. I have friends, people on Instagram that I follow, who are running, rushing out to go to Florida, or rushing out to go to Mexico, Cabo. And, I mean, these are the progressive people that I follow, mostly because they're pretty girls. I have a pattern. I have an MO. I'm not ashamed of it. But they're going out on these exotic, wild vacations when they're supposed to be cowering in their homes afraid, or they want you to be cowering in your home afraid to go and do anything, engage in commerce, or anything else of this matter. Nobody's afraid of this anymore. Nobody cares. It's all a virtue signal at this point. And University of Montevallo will return to full in-person classes this fall from WBRC. Well, better late than never, uh, never rather, but... Out of Montevallo, Alabama, from WBRC staff, the University of Montevallo will return to traditional in-person class model for the fall 2021 semester. Leaders made the decision through utilizing the guidance of state and national medical experts and in consideration of wider distribution of vaccines nationwide. With the announcement, new and returning students will be able to register and plan for their courses for the fall semester. We look forward to fall semester with a deep sense of gratitude for the sacrifices all our students, uh, faculty, and staff made us uh, made to get us here," said Dr. John W. Stewart III, U of M president. Our COVID-19 task force worked tirelessly with faculty and staff colleagues across campus to keep our students safe and to do what Montevallo has done best since 1896: teaching, learning, and preparing students for meaningful lives and successful careers. And that's just it, right? I mean, we're continuing to go down even as the vaccine goes out, to go down this entire path of nationwide Simon Says. Except I think it's Anthony Says at this point. Anthony Says, put on two masks. Anthony Says, go and get your vaccine. Anthony Says, stay in your home and keep your businesses at 25% capacity. Anthony Says, shut your schools down. Anthony Says, you can't go to university. And people are fed up with it. People are fucking sick of it. I have long said that the authoritarian nature of Joe Biden and his record and Kamala Harris waiting in the wings could possibly lead to a more liberty-minded movement in this country. If libertarians and liberty-minded Freedom Caucus Republicans do it right, and there is a very, very good way to do all of this wrong, but the American people strive for freedom. They strive to go out. They strive to go out and be with people, to be among their peers, to be in the classroom. They strive for contact, and they're starting to come back and say enough is enough. We saw it in Texas. We saw it in Mississippi. This is a good first step for Alabama. And New York and California may still cower, but even California is starting to open back up because they know this is bullshit at this point. The human spirit is free, and we strive to remain free, and that restores my faith in humanity. 
and hopefully it keeps going. I really do. And that's going to be it for the day. So, we're going to head on out of here. I don't have my outro music queued up again, but I'm going to head on out of here and start working up the visual aids for the Red Net Show. I hope that you guys will come back and join me later on tonight for that. It'll be a great time. My wonderful co-host is Elaine, if you're new here. Come back and come hang out with her and I as we discuss the news of the week. And we've got some good stuff up. We'll be talking about HR1. We'll be talking about uh, the new stimulus coming out. We'll be talking a bit about Cuomo and some of the other stuff going on. It'll be a good time. We've got a good show lined up for you guys today. And we hope to see you here. That is at 530 Central Time on these same channels that you're watching now. So come back and hang out with us for that. Otherwise, we'll be back here at 745 a.m. tomorrow for contemporary number 267 and see what kind of stupid shit the government can throw at us in the next 24 hours. So hope to see you guys there. Until then, I'm Jay Edgar, and this is Contemporary. <laughs>